Scaling Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and Deanna Troy said, I never met a chocolate I didn't like, which gives me hope that in the 24th century, they've eliminated greed, poverty, and white chocolate. (laughs) I'm joined on this episode once again by New York Times and USA Today bestselling author Catherine M. Valenti. Catherine is the Hugo and Locus Award-winning author of over two dozen novels, short stories, and novellas, plus many other works of poetry, nonfiction, and fiction, including her novel Deathless and the Fairyland series of novels. Her most recent novel, Space Opera, was a 2019 Hugo Award-winning nominee for Best Novel, and its sequel, Space Odyssey, will be coming out soon. Catherine, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me again. It's great to have you back aboard. Today we'll be talking about The Game, the sixth episode of the fifth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Wesley Crusher gets a bad rap. Wait, where are you going? Come come back. Seriously, where most fans see a simpering nerd, I see a boy with amazing gifts who's being raised with no peer group. Where they see a precocious stripling who saves the day every week, I see a kid who keeps his cool in the midst of certain death in space. Face it, you hate Wesley because you wanted to be Wesley. He's a super genius who gets to hang with the crew of the Enterprise, and yeah, sometimes he nods off and his nanites get loose and they take over the ship, but how much sleep did you need as a teenager? Wesley is significant in Star Trek because he represents the literal next generation of the Federation, full of promise and poised to exceed the technological and social achievements of those who came before him. If he doesn't get executed for falling into a flower bed, that is. Come on, kid. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Catherine, it's great to have you back on the program. And we last spoke in October of 2019. And the world looks significantly stranger now in August of 2020. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> it's a uh, it, lot's happened. Yeah. Uh, specifically, uh, just on a worldwide basis, the coronavirus uh, outbreak. Uh, how has that affected your work day to day? Um, well, we, so I may have, I don't know if I mentioned last time that I have a small child, yeah. so, uh, childcare options and we have two adults working from home full time. We normally work from home, yeah. but that's a whole different situation when you suddenly have a, a child who, you know, he's not even two years old yet. He can't explain to him what's happening. Yeah. Like there, there's no, there's no way to communicate to him that, that like, sorry, we can't go to the park ever right um yeah (laughs) like i I don't know when this is going to be over like there's it's a very difficult age to deal with that and um you know suddenly every human in his life going away uh except his parents so it's been really difficult um my work schedule has gotten all tangled up uh jeremy baramy style and um it's just it's been really crazy and i also uh, this sort of slate of books that I'm working on right now um, are supposed to be kind of optimistic. <laughs> uh, okay. And that's a, that's a hard ask at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so, we can use it though, yeah. <laughs> no, I'd like, you know, I believe in it. And, and in many ways, I do think, um, had I finished Space Oddity on time, I would have missed uh, what Space Oddity was clearly destined to deal with because Eurovision got canceled this year and it has mm. never been canceled before in the yeah. history of Eurovision, which is what the space opera series deals with. Right. Uh, it's it's inspired by Eurovision. So I think that there is a sort of kismet uh, that like there is there is a, a a thing that this book can do that it wouldn't be able to do otherwise um, <laughs> yeah. for people for people. Uh, you know, space opera was has always been meant to 
um, you know, lift people up in dark times and, and, and this will be no different, but it's, um, it's hard for me to pull off because, yeah. uh, I, I'm feeling less than glittery these days, but, um, but yeah, you know, we're, we're getting through as best we can. Yeah. I mean, you live on an Island. Has there any, uh, any comfort in that? Well, there would be, and there kind of was in the winter part, but now sure. it's nice. Now. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so no one cares. So, uh, we are inundated with tourists. Um, I actually can leave the house less now than I could in oh, April, no. uh, because people are, um, out there not, uh, wearing masks like they come off the boat and they just take their masks off because it's safe here obviously right uh and everything's you know so cozy and and separate from the city and then the local paper told everyone to come here for their staycations yeah which you know a a key part of a staycation is the word stay Uh uh and you know this is not staying this is where we live so it's um actually right now uh, we all feel a little more confined than we did to begin with because now it's genuinely not safe because yeah. um, people are just not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But um, I mean, at least we know we know how to hunker down in, in Maine. And on top of all of that, uh, not only did we have our first ever fatal shark attack by a great white shark yeah. in this day, but we are uh, under tornado warnings tonight. So actual oh tornado in real life yeah. happening. Uh, for us, <laughs> so, wow, just a lot on top of a lot uh, <laughs> going on around here. But yeah, unfortunately, the island, um, because it is an attraction, uh, we there's there's hundreds and thousands of people here every weekend not wearing masks. So now I can never leave my home. Oh, it's it's hard to know. It's hard to know what kids will take with them into adulthood and what they sort of remember about childhood. But I I wouldn't be surprised if there's a certain generation of kids all over the world who have an aversion to masks or wash their hands a little, a little extra long, you know, as they grow up to be adults. Um, because I just, it's just so crazy to think about, um, like all the kids that aren't in school and hopefully, hopefully there's some kind of intervention and won't be going to school, uh, at least for this fall. And I wonder what kids will kind of remember about those years of their life. Yeah. I mean, look, some kid. Uh, for Christmas this year, wished for uh, world peace and school to be canceled, and uh, <laughs> won the, won the, the lottery. monkey paw curled. Down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I, you know, I was talking about this in a class I was teaching because I—that's another big. I, I've been teaching constantly and uh, doing all these these online uh, panels and stuff like that and podcasts. So um, yeah. I, I was telling one of the classes that I was teaching that, like, I guarantee you, there is a certain group of kids that are a certain, just the right age. We're going to look back on this as the best time of their childhoods when mom and dad were home all the time. And like, we got to play every day and we got to eat a bunch of junk food and watch a bunch of crappy TV because mom and dad were too tired to say no. Uh, and, but, but for them, it will be amazing when they felt, uh, really like cozy and taken care of. And mom and dad weren't at work every day. Like, you know, they will remember that. Anybody older than that is going to be very annoyed yeah. <laughs> uh, at this period in history, and rightly so. We're all annoyed. Yeah, but, um, it's all in how you look at it. It's all in the the perspective. Uh, you know, there there are certainly moments that we've had as a family that we wouldn't otherwise. Uh, and I'm sure we've we've all learned to bake bread. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, we've all learned to do a lot of things <laughs> that we would uh, know how to do. I personally have uh, enough pasta. Uh, stacked up in my uh, mudroom to last me until the end of time, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, 
So yeah, it's just a it's a very strange world that I don't think we ever thought we'd be living in again. I think you know then this kind of connects to Star Trek in a way because I feel like we'd started thinking that we were already kind of in a world where scarcity yeah was not going to be a thing. I mean, yeah. obviously for a lot of us it still is for the for you oh, know yes, the, yeah. the developing world and the the global poor and for a lot of poor in America, which still has a huge poverty and homeless problem. But like the people who run culture don't have a poverty and homeless problem because they make money running culture. And yeah. uh, I feel like a lot of social media and the more privileged parts of our society were sort of already thinking as though they lived in Replicatorville and we're never going to have to look for flour again. Yeah. And so it was existentially shocking to suddenly not be able to buy butter. Like that that's not a thing that anybody uh, expected. That that's a story your grandmother tells you. That's not uh, <laughs> yeah. like, the problem is not having money. The problem is not that if you have money there's nothing to buy. Yeah. <laughs> like that that's not a that has not been a problem that anybody in America has had for a couple generations. And and it's it's uh, definitely thrown everyone for a loop. If there's a so there's a curio shop up in your neck of the woods uh, where a monkey paw just fell off the shelf, I think. Um, yeah. And doubling down on that uh, on a smaller scale, you know, because enough is never enough for 2020. The Hugo Award ceremony was held last weekend, <laughs> uh, as of this taping. And although a panoply of talented and multiracial men and women were honored, many people were dismayed by the ceremony and the seemingly indelible tone of retrograde racism and misogyny that seems baked into the proceedings, which were hosted by George R. R. Martin, no less. Yeah. So that happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was. That was also shocking and also uh, just mortifying and embarrassing. Embarrassing for, um, you know, the the concom of the convention and embarrassing for George Martin and embarrassing for the community and deeply embarrassing for the nominees. It just um, didn't have to happen that way. And, like, some of it is just pure professionalism, like mispronouncing the names of so many nominees and i'm not going to say that my name i've I've been nominated for the hugo a lot uh and my name's been mispronounced like 50 (laughs) percent of the times okay so like you know but at the same time uh when it's a pre-recorded segment yeah there's really no excuse for that you just go back and do another take yeah uh not like a live show where you you know you screw up you screw up um and the the pans to john campbell when (laughs) When not only uh, have we changed the name of the award, we changed the name of the award to the Astounding Award from the John W. Right. Campbell Award uh, because uh, the woman who won last year, who is an amazing writer, um, got up and I was I was there in person in, in Ireland because huh. uh, I was I was nominated. Gave, got up and gave this astonishing acceptance speech uh, about how John Campbell was a fascist. I mean, it, you should have seen the room; it blew everyone's hair back. No one was expecting it, and it yeah. was amazing. Uh, pointing out the way that you know this award lionizes someone who is well known for their racism and their sexism and and their fascistic tendencies, yeah. and then for for George Martin to get up there and just sing his praises for as long as he did he just went on, <laughs> on, on. So um, and, and it, it, it and that that speech was nominated for and won the hugo for best Lily. i know <laughs> like how so else it's it, like it's hard not to george george is very beloved oh sure it's very hard not to see that as a deliberate swipe 
Yeah, especially when they they had retro Hugos this year, and you yeah. know, if you want to emphasize the contribution of white men, Ted Sturgeon, Cliff Simak, Ray Bradbury, you know, Evan Lovecraft, like that was that was yeah. all baked into it anyway. But we had to do this, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, the thing is, I think that part of it is that nobody entirely knows what to do with someone that we all kind of thought of as an ally yeah. uh, doing this. Like there are people, and Robert Silverberg got up and did what Robert Silverberg always does. And nobody's that mad about it because he always does that. Yeah, he always it. gets up and talks about how things were better when he was young and his friends were better than our friends. And like his, his, <laughs> the writers that he uh, uh, came up with are better than the writers now. That's just what he does. Like sometimes he says very offensive things like what he said about N.K. Jemison. Uh, but everyone kind of expects him to be offensive grandpa. Nobody yeah. really expects George Martin to get up there and go against the community and the spirit of the community right now, the way he did, you know, this is the guy who, um, you know, invented a, a new award to help people, you know, still get uh, acknowledgement after the during the whole puppies fiasco and everything. And yeah. it's thrown the Hugo Losers Party, invented the Hugo Losers Party. Like this yeah. is somebody that people really look up to. And so it was very shocking for everyone. And um, I think everyone's still kind of working their way through it. Um, and a lot of the way people are working through it is that the floodgates have kind of opened and uh, apparently it's okay to not like uh, a lot of the mas masters of science fiction now. Um, has for a long time, you've really not been allowed to say anything against uh, the sort of panoply of dead old white men. Uh, but <laughs> now we can say, why are we doing the retro Hugos again? Like, what was the yeah? What, what was the 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 specs on that? Uh, and yeah. like, maybe Heinlein isn't the best of us. Uh, and maybe like we could point out a little more that Asimov like harassed women at oh, every convention God. he ever attended. Yeah, like that these are not gods, and that perhaps work that is just as good is being published now and in the recent past by women and uh queer writers and writers of color and yeah. that the, 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 perhaps we don't need to completely worship it which is a good result from a bad situation i guess so i mean you know uh, racism sexism are being criticized you know in in um every sphere now for for good reason and I think a lot of people like your average end user or reader of a sci-fi or fantasy book doesn't realize um, what a problem it's been institutionally in the sci-fi community for so long. And I know that the Hugos, you know, have been a battleground uh, for that in the last decade or so. Um, I remember on my pop culture podcast, Just Enough Trope, we did an expose of sorts in 2015 on the whole sad puppies garbage of the time. Yeah. And I thought that we did a pretty good job of covering it. And then we interviewed uh, Mary Robinette Cole later that year. And we got a real education on the crap mm. that female and minority uh, science fiction and fantasy writers are putting up with. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, so I, I started publishing in 2004. So I've sort of uh, been here for a lot of the sort of dust ups of the last decade and a half. And yeah. uh, and there there were more dust ups in that decade and a half than than uh, probably there's ever been <laughs> well, I don't want to say there's ever been because there used to be tons of dust-ups all the time but they were on Usenet and they were in the pages of like Locus and the, mm. the letters to the editor dust-ups just take a lot longer to develop right. and the, the Usenet ones uh, were just a smaller group of people so I think it's just a, a perfect storm of like live journal is kind of where the first one in like the first big one called race fail in 2009 happened yeah, yeah. and then Moving on to Twitter and all of that, uh, I just think it, it was a perfect storm of um, technology and uh, old guard and new guard 
coming to loggerheads. And old guards and new guards come to loggerheads every decade or so. That is a natural part of the cycle of art, and it is fine. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, uh, a lot of the old guard i don't i don't want to get in trouble like i because there's a lot of wonderful people in the old guard um but there are segments of the old guard who are very who have been very hostile to the um encroachment of women and uh lgbtq and and people of color into um the not just publishing itself because we've always been there but into the sort of halls of of the rarefied masters you know like the People acknowledging uh, works of true genius by by authors of those uh, identities, and um, and them starting to uh, have uh, a much bigger presence in the awards, uh, and and so there's been fights about that. Uh, God, so much there's been so much cyber ink spilt on it, and it just it just comes down to uh, not to you know crib from from an old thing but like you know we're here get used to it yeah, uh sure. like, we're not going anywhere uh we're writing good books and uh we're we're no longer interested in um staying quiet uh and and being unacknowledged because there are uh, uh white men in the straight white men in the room who who feel like they should be acknowledged first like it's just not how it works anymore. It's, yeah. it's not that world. And uh, part of that, I was tweeting about this today, part of that is sort of recognizing that, hey, maybe um, while people are out there reading the books they like, a lot of what th- they do like is not going to be stuff that uh, treats marginalized people as props at best and to be eradicated at worst. Like, that's not fun. That's not fun escapism. No. And it's not good literature either. Yeah. Uh, and so the stuff that lasts is going to be stuff that doesn't make people feel like they don't belong in the world. Yeah. It's 2020. We live in this future now, man. Like, it, we, yeah. it, it, it just, it doesn't look like, uh, you know, Campbell wanted it to look. And that's a good thing. So we're all just, uh, we're all just trying to get along here and create good art. Uh, and it's, it's not actually... Um, the women and the 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 queer community and the uh, non-white world that is causing the problems. Actually, we're just we're just doing what we've always done. We're just kind of allowed to do it now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's 2020, and I'm still having arguments with Star Trek fans about mm-hmm. not being political. You know, about oh. diversity and representation, and it's like, what show are you watching? Yeah, I've never understood conservative Star Trek fans. I don't get it. Like. Uh, did we watch Highlands the right there? Did, did you did you watch it with the sound off? Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't get it at all. Uh, so yeah, and you know, with the, with Discovery and everything, then there's been a whole new yeah, spate yeah. of arguments about um, Star Trek that that continue to make no sense at all to me. Well, you're a Hugo nominee and a Hugo winner yourself for SF Squeak Cast, and I'll get in trouble. I don't care. Other than these old diehards, just. <clears throat> going to their rest how do you see things getting better in the halls of sff um you know like anything there the the discussions will continue and uh there will be there won't be a consensus because that's not how any of this works i mean god we've been having world cons for 75 years and uh, we still can't agree on what the canon actually is uh so it's not going to 
there's not going to be some kind of consensus and then everything's fine. But you're going to see the same patterns that you've always seen. There'll be, you know, the old guard and the new guard and a new guard will come along after all of us now and uh we will seem stuck in the past to them and they will create amazing work and hopefully we will be more graceful about it uh than (laughs) than um you know some some other folks but but maybe not you know grace is hard to come by uh i think that i think that probably um you know i i don't think that every hugo nominee for novel is going to be uh a woman as it was this year forever. Um, I don't think that that that's going to happen, but I hope that it will never be as, as unbalanced in the other direction again. Um, And people will write good books and hopefully they will get awards and we don't have to uh, fight about it, but that's probably a utopian vision. um, Cause we really love to argue. That's the other problem. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We don't love to argue about stuff that hurts us, but we love to argue just fundamentally. Uh, and Twitter is a terrible platform for arguing. So that's a mess. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think a lot probably hinges on how things go in November, uh, as to how the future is going to end up and who knows when cons will come back. Yeah. which is where a lot of this stuff goes down. So I think that really just most people's answer is is to hunker down and write the next book and hope for the best. But uh, I, there's always going to be people who are resistant. There's always going to be people who um, don't want what you got. And yeah. uh, we've got to find a way to ignore them i guess and uh and and claim claim contemporaneity contemporaneity for our, ourselves because it is our world it is our future um it's not the 60s anymore and uh we we don't have to live in the fantasy uh of the 60s as far as the future yeah. comes gotta find our own well here's something that might help i saw on twitter that shannon pitched the idea that you and her should host next year's <laughs> awards and i fully throw my support behind that heal this world a little bit well they've already chosen next year's but uh hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they'll give it to shannon and i at some point sure uh, we're, we're good for it <laughs> <laughs> well let's talk for a bit about your wonderful work uh, your writing is extremely original in the way that it combines fantasy and alternate universes with historicity and mythical elements. And the last time we talked, I asked if you, uh, when you're engineering a, a mashup of sorts, if you ever look at what you're working on and go, yeah, that'll do. I think I got enough stuff in there, enough elements. But what I want to ask this time around is when you're constructing something like Deathless, for instance, where you're combining you know, Russian folklore with the Russian Revolution or like the Prester John series where, you know, you're doing a series about Prester John, of all things. <laughs> Do you ever think, are people going to get this? Is this too unconventional? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you'd bring up Prester John with that because I absolutely thought that. I was like, nobody knows what this is. No, you could, uh, you could tell people that you just made it up and nobody oh, knows and the they, myth of Prester John. Most of them would believe it. So I, I, my solution to this was that, um, and you can still find it on YouTube, I got out a bunch of my old action figures and I <laughs> did a YouTube video explaining the history of Prester John with um, like Spider-Man and Venom as like the spirit of Christ and the body of Christ and like um, you know, explaining Nestorianism and, and the, the like different sects of, of Christianity before uh, the Nicene uh, Revolution and everything. Yeah. Uh, like all this very obscure medieval stuff with memes and action figures uh and by the number of views on youtube i will say i have now 
taught more people about Prester John than I would have if I had finished my PhD and, and become a professor, which was my <laughs> original intent. So I'm fairly proud of that. Um, so that I, I felt like Prester John is such a is is a thing that people don't know is real. Yeah. And that's something I couldn't communicate in the pages of fiction. I couldn't be like, oh, BT dubs. Right. Uh, yeah. This is real. Authors know. So note. I had to do something <laughs> outside the book for that. But with Deathless, people are aware that Russia is a real country. Yeah, yeah. They had a revolution, that World War II is a thing. So like there were certain big things I could sort of count on an American audience knowing, but there was a lot I couldn't. Yeah. Um, most Americans don't know very much about Russian culture. Actually, they know a lot of stereotypes. Um, they don't know a lot about Russian food. They don't know a lot about Russian history. Um, and most of them find Russian names confusing. Mm. So I had a I had a lot on my plate for Deathless. And I did whenever I, I wrote about Japan as well, where I used to live, mm. uh, because I just had to, I had to communicate to uh, a Western audience all of the culture that went into this as well as the story itself. But to be perfectly honest, that is how you write science fiction and fantasy anyway. Yeah. You're always having to world build. You're always having to communicate what uh, the language of uh, your your world is and the food of your world and, and the culture of it and the history of it. And so uh, having just keeping in mind that you do still have to do that with a real culture from planet Earth uh, when you can't count on your audience knowing as much as you know yeah. is 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 pretty much the trick um there there is a part of deathless um toward the end where i kind of uh gave up on whether <laughs> on, on on hoping people knew things it was kind of a if you know this this section is the coolest part of the book if you don't i'm sorry it's just pretty and <laughs> you'll have to deal with it okay. um but, but there's a whole scene uh in in a village called yaichka and it's um it's basically like the whole of russian history played out as a small village in the mountains um and if you if you know the the movers and shakers of the revolution and the, and the war and everything, then this is extremely deep for you. Uh, but if you don't, um, it's it's just it's kind of odd, but it still fits with the story. And that's the balance I had to strike there. That if you don't know, it's still a good part of the story. But I was kind of surprised how many people like didn't know Lenin's first name. Okay, that, sure. I I, I kind of thought people knew Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. I guess I guess that was. Uh, you make assumptions and, and sometimes they turn out to be wrong. I did. I had one of my beta readers for the book uh, at one point was like, I have no idea what the significance of the year 1917 is. Okay. I was like, oh, well, all right. Well, okay, sure. I'll fix that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's why it's good to have beta readers who don't know about what you're writing about. So they can be like, uh, I don't, this lost me. Yeah. So I, I think about that all the time. I really do. Um, and I'm always trying to write, books that are entertaining even if you know nothing even when it comes to something like space opera that is intended to be read if you have never heard the word eurovision in your life mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know if you've never heard the word eurovision then the sections of the book uh correspond to the parts of captain planet or they're just elements and heart um if you do know eurovision you know that that is the eurovision drinking game it is the most traditional one uh <laughs> that you drink whenever your element comes on stage yeah right. uh, if your element is heart it's whenever love is you know the word love or a, a physical heart you know yeah. is on on um and yes all of the chapter titles are eurovision songs but if you don't know that then they just seem like cool idiosyncratic phrases uh so all of it everything is meant to be read on two levels like if you if you 
if you can smell what I'm cooking, uh, then then you you get all the little Easter eggs. And if you don't, it's still a, a funny, good, vivid story. And maybe you think I'm smarter than I am because uh, <laughs> you think I made all that stuff up. Well, I, I like that you have the little uh, animal farm village where everything's just sort of playing yeah. out in, in metaphor. Um, I was going to ask you about uh, Picard, uh, but I'd rather ask you about the Will Ferrell movie Eurovision Song <laughs> Contest Story of Fire Saga. It's yeah. so for somebody like me who uh, I guess was, you know, got my education about Eurovision last year talking to you. And then in between then and now this movie comes out. I'm like, oh, my God. Well, you know, I wanted to hate it. Like, I really did. But... Yeah. Will Ferrell, I think he loves Eurovision so much he forgot to shit all over it. Like he usually does. Make <laughs> the movie like this. Yeah. Like it's so it's so pure and innocent, and it really genuinely is good. And the music is genuinely good. Um, like there, there's some complaints I could make, but to be perfectly honest, like it's really just a fun movie, and it it feel it feels nice. And since there never there wasn't a 2020 Eurovision, it was nice to watch one. Yeah, that's so um, weird. Yeah, that it's another one of those things. I feel like it was made for me in such a weird way. Like like even um, Eurovision it takes place in Edinburgh in the movie, mm-hmm. which would which will never happen. Um, the UK would have to win for one thing, uh, <laughs> and that's not happening. And for another thing, I don't think the UK would hold it in Edinburgh at this point if they did win. Mm. Um, so there's a fan the, fan canon going around, which is that uh, Scotland separated from the sure, UK sure. because of Brexit, and then Scotland won, which that I completely... They, that would totally happen, uh, yeah. That would happen. <laughs> um, but I went to college in Edinburgh, so... Yeah. Um, like I was like freaking out when they're driving around the city being like, Oh, look at the city. It's this church. It's like, I, I, I really, even that was so delightful to me. And there's a, a billion cameos. And, yeah. um, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I know who that movie is for other than fans yeah, of I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not really, I'm like, I, there's so much, uh, in it, like that whole song along thing. Like though, if you don't know those people are Eurovision singers, I, I don't know if that scene even makes sense to you, but, um, but it's. I think I thought it was very sweet. I really like um, the song at the end, Husavik, and and uh, I mean, my my kid uh, loves Ya Ya Ding Dong. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll yell at Alexa to play Ding Dong. Uh, so it. I really enjoyed it. I really did. That's awesome. Well, we got to keep rolling here. Uh, why did you choose this specific episode, the game, to discuss today? So, uh, I funny story. Uh-huh. Um, I have uh, I, I have many brothers, and uh, one of them uh, I mentioned on the previous podcast. But uh, my other brother had a sad because he's the one who's watched Star Trek with me um, our whole lives, and he didn't get mentioned on the podcast. Oh no! <laughs> and I was like, I'm so sorry. You know, I know you and I are Star Trek friends, but uh, it just it just happened that way. Sure. And so uh, I said, why don't you uh, pick the episode that I'll do for the next one? Uh, so this, this one goes out to my brother, Nick, right. uh, who would also like to point out, uh, that in, uh, Star Trek six, when people complain about the, uh, uniforms, uh, mismatching, uh, he is in the military and he would like me to tell everyone that, uh, that happens all the time in the military okay. and it's actually not a nitpick. It is a, a, totally realistic, one of the more realistic military things Star Trek has pulled off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm concerned about how there, there's just so much wool involved in the construction of all the uh, uniforms, the big bulky maroon jackets. And then it looks like there's a, it's a very thick fiber that the TNG jumpsuits are wearing. Everybody would be sweating constantly. It's oh, nothing, it nothing breathes. So, it looks so hot. Yeah. It looks uncomfortable all the time. 
like even aside from and we will get into what the what the kids are wearing in this episode oh, yeah. uh like it everyone looks uncomfortable and it shouldn't because they're essentially sweat sweatpants and a sweatshirt but yeah. it somehow still looks uncomfortable yeah those big coogee sweaters yeah um i'll confess with no trepidation that i really liked wesley crusher as a kid when i was watching the show and it wasn't an, well yeah it wasn't until later that i was instructed that i was supposed to hate him and I know that he, I guess for some fans, like gums up the works of this cool power fantasy of the future <laughs> that people see Trek as. But I liked how smart and generally noble he was. And I read an opinion piece somewhere that made the point that he was really instrumental in the show's broad appeal. You've got the adults who are the, you know, the TOS fans tuning in when TNG starts. But you've got a whole new generation of fans who need a touchstone character to fixate on, you know, while mom and dad are watching this new Trek show. And I think that, you know, with the number of people I've talked to who say that their love of Trek began uh, in in some part with their parents, uh, you included, uh, I'd say it worked. I, I wouldn't say he's a perfect character. Uh, he has problems, which we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, uh, so how old were you when you were watching Star Trek Next Gen, though? Hmm, was it 86, 87? I was nine or 10 years old. Yeah, see, I was a kid. Yeah. So, of course... I didn't have a problem with Wesley and I wasn't sure. annoyed by, by a kid saving the day because I was a kid. So uh, that was my fantasy that I would be able to save the day. And that, that you know, <laughs> even though the, the adults didn't listen to me, I would still be right. Like that's the ultimate. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's like how sure. YA works as a genre. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I had the biggest crush on Wesley and like, I, I thought he was totally awesome um, and never questioned that his, his place in the show at all until I was much older and found out that everyone hated Wesley. Yeah, right. uh, so I, I liked him a lot. I yeah. never had any real issue with him. Um, I, and I do, I wonder if I would have liked the show as much at that time in my life, if it had just been all adults led by a bald guy, like, would I have liked that show as much? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm sure I would have when I was a teenager in my twenties when, you know, it was, rebroadcasting on every station yeah, all the time. Yeah. But uh, I'm not sure I would have liked it as much, you know, when I was a, a eight or nine years old. Yeah. So, yeah, I never had an issue with Wesley. And it's funny, I didn't really think about that uh, we did a Wesley episode last time, too. Yeah, we did. <laughs> so... And uh, we'll talk about that, too. Uh, but right now we're talking about the TNG episode, The Game. It's the sixth episode of the fifth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. It first aired on October 28th of 1991. The teleplay for this episode is by Brandon Braga, who we definitely know. This was his first script, however, for Trek after being a writing intern for the fourth season of TNG. The story of the episode is by Braga and Susan Sackett and Fred Bronson. And let's talk about the people who pitched the story of this episode. Sackett was a production associate on TNG. And she was Gene Roddenberry's personal assistant during the filming of the first five Trek films. She worked with Roddenberry for 17 years until his death in 1991. She also wrote a number of books about the making of Star Trek The Motion Picture, as well as other show business topics. She co-wrote the episodes The Game and the third season episode Menage Troy with her writing partner, Fred Bronson. Bronson worked as a publicist for NBC in the 70s and early 80s, handling publicity for shows like Buck Rogers, The Bionic Woman, and Hollywood Squares. Bronson introduced Sackett to Gene Roddenberry in 1974, and he wrote the series finale of the Star Trek animated series, The Counterclock Incident. He also had a weekly column in Billboard magazine and has written for various music award shows. And get this, he was a member of the jury at Meloda Festival in 2009. Ah! Yes, a pre-selection event <laughs> to choose Sweden's representative to the 2009 Eurovision Song Contest. That's what a nerd I am. You, you, you say that. I knew what it was. You knew what it was right away. <laughs> 
So the episode was directed by Corey Allen. Allen got his start as an actor playing Buzz Gunderson in Rebel Without a Cause, but soon moved into directing theater and later television, which he would do continually until his death in 2010. Allen directed four episodes of DS9 and five of TNG, including the series premiere Encounter at Farpoint. The start date for this episode is 45208.2, and your assignment, Catherine, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of the game. Uh, I can do it in much less than that. Sure. Video games are bad. Yeah. That's, <laughs> it's it's so weird. Well, we'll talk about this in a bit, uh, but it's so weird to think that uh, this, you know, people still hated video games. I think that's kind of oh, dead yeah. now, but yeah. The slightly longer version is that, uh, uh, you know, Riker brings back uh, an addictive video game and it turns out to be a mind control device. Uh, and then Wesley and a one off girlfriend have to save the day. Like, that's the episode. It is an iconic episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is not one of the forgettable ones. Uh, like, when my brother suggested this, I was like, yeah, we'll do that one. That's, that's one. fine. I remember most of that episode without even having to rewatch it. Uh, it. It definitely is one of those that, that everybody remembers. Yeah. And I think I must have had this, um, you know, back in the day, you've got like two VHS tapes. Uh, that you record TV onto and um, watch them over and over. And so I must have had this one at some point on VHS because I remember this really well. As I was watching this, I was like, I don't think I have to watch this. I remember the whole thing. Yeah. Here's some facts from our memory banks about this episode. Uh, the episode's co-writer Bronson said that the idea for the episode came from the fact that whenever he wanted a distraction from work, he would boot up Tetris on his computer yeah. and he found it very addictive, uh, totally relatable. Uh, this episode was kicked around for a while before it finally reached the screen. It was pitched by Sackett and Bronson for the fourth season, with many writers attempting subsequent drafts of the story. It was eventually given to incoming writer Brandon Braga for his first script. Braga decided to take the story in a darker direction, unconsciously basing the concept of his draft on the film Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And editor's note, I don't want to plug myself too much on this, but on my other Star Trek podcast called Backtrekking, uh, we look at the inspirations behind classic episodes of Trek, and my co-host and I compare the game and Philip Kaufman's excellent 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You can check that out at, at Backtrekking on Twitter. Braga also modeled the plot of the episode on the then-popular concern that children were becoming addicted to home console video games, though he not notes the ironic twist of all the adults becoming addicted in the episode. He also set out to make Wesley Crusher a little hipper, his words, by depicting him as a more relaxed and self-possessed Academy student. And for kids today, and by kids I mean, you know, young adults, they might not even remember that just maybe 10 or less years ago, uh, we were still trying to, you know, pin things on video games, pin violence, uh, you know, uh, you know, horrible school shootings and things like that. And you know, our president, our commander in chief uh, tried that last year, trying to blame a series of shootings on violent video games. But at that point, it was like, yeah, it's get a new take. It's It's played out. Like, they've just become such a big part of our society that this kind of, you know, scare story about video games being bad for you um, doesn't doesn't quite translate to today. But, I mean, the hilarious thing about it is that, like, as a game, this game clearly sucks. No, this is a terrible uh, game. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, is, it is candy crush in space. Um, and, and that is actually kind of prescient that, like, all the moms uh, and, and dads were the ones who are addicted to it rather than the kids. Um, yeah. Which is not to say kids aren't addicted to. Now we're just like, yeah, now we're all addicted to games. It's fine. Uh, but the the game itself is not violent at all. And in fact, they were still trying to make this argument about how you know video games are violent when video games were just like 
the worst graphics ever yeah. uh and and virtually you know just pixels uh bouncing off a screen they probably said it about pong <laughs> yeah pong, <laughs> pong is corrupting our children <laughs> I could totally see that happening. I guarantee you I could find an article where someone had terrible satanic warnings about Pong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a chick track about what Pong is doing to your kids. Uh, in this episode, when Data is deactivated by Dr. Crusher and falls onto the bio bed, actor Brent Spiner actually hit the bed so hard that he cut his chin. He had to be taken to the hospital. Upon returning to the set, the director immediately asked him for another take of the scene. <laughs> Wesley appears in his cadet uniform in this episode, which he'd wear in appearances until his departure from Starfleet and the series in the seventh season episode Journey's End, which was also directed by Alan. And this was the first episode of the series where a matte painting was used to visually extend the Jeffries tube. It's a technique that would be adopted for many future Trek series, um, a lot of those on DS9. Uh, this is the first time that Molly, the O'Brien's daughter, is named on screen. Hana Hate would not appear as Molly on the show until next season in the episode Rest. And this was the first episode of The Next Generation to air after Gene Roddenberry's death on October 24th in 1991. Hmm. Let's talk about the guest stars for the episode. Uh, the major one is, of course, Ashley Judd, who appears as Robin Leffler. This was the second and last appearance of Robin Leffler. Judd is the daughter of Naomi Judd, who, along with Ashley's half-scissor Winona, make up the country-western duo The Judds. Judd went on from Trek to movie stardom, having appeared in many films, and she's currently in pre-production on the film Anita, where she, where she will play Anita Bryant, the beauty queen and singer who became an anti-LGBTQ rights activist. And I think we're probably going to take that one from the opposite angle, like a satire, I'm guessing. God, I hope so. I she don't was the orange juice we, queen, yeah. But why are we doing this with like the Phyllis Shafley thing? Like, come on. What, you know, I don't understand why we need to make these about those terrible people. Why yeah. can't we tell the story of that era without centering? Yeah, something like Bombshell uh, kind of rides that line because yeah. I don't like any of those people, but a lot of some of them were victims and we're kind of telling their story too. But uh, I'm, I'm wondering how they're going to make this. I still want to see it. I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, the, the last thing I want to do with my evening is like spend some time with Phyllis goddamn Shafley. So yeah, like, I, right. I'm not, I, I don't care how great Kate Blanchett is. I'm not watching that. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know what this new trend is, but like I don't like it. Vice, like Vice. Uh, I guess these are all Adam McKay movies, but like uh, Dick Cheney's a terrible person, but maybe you should sympathize Vice a little with really him. Good. Wasn't he kind of cool? <laughs> but that's, I mean, have you seen Vice? Yeah. It's like uh, Vice was really good, actually. Yeah, the worst uh, parts are the overtly political parts, which yeah. is weird to say. Um, but yeah, it is a fascinating is look really at him good. and great performances. Uh, fun fact, Judd is an outspoken activist for humanitarian and civil rights and causes. And in 2014, she considered running against Mitch McConnell of Kentucky for yeah. his Senate seat, but ultimately decided against it. And um, this is all pre-Me Too, so I wish, I wish that she'd done that. Yeah, I do too. Catherine Moffat appears as Itana Joel in the episode. Moffat would go on to play the role of Vatrick Palra in the DS9 episode Necessary Evil. She made many appearances on TV since her 1977 debut. She provided the voice of the Scarlet Witch in the 90s Iron Man cartoon series. And she also appeared in the film Spy Hard. And she retired from acting in 1998. And of course, Will Wheaton appears in this episode as Wesley Crusher. We've never really talked about Will Wheaton in detail on this show. Um... So let's give a couple facts about him. He got his start very early in acting, appearing in TV shows and films starting in 1981. His breakout role was, of course, the 1986 Rob Reiner film Stand By Me. He played the role of Jordy Lachance. 
Uh, he landed Next Gen almost immediately after Stand By Me. Uh, somebody I interviewed previously made the point that, you know, forget Patrick Stewart, LeVar Burton and Will Wheaton were TNG's big gets in the mid 80s. Uh, the oh, kid from Stand sure. By Me. Yeah. And the kid from like, Reading that's Rainbow. That's why I wanted to. I, re- I remember being like, oh, my God, the guy from Reading Rainbow is going to be on Star Trek. Yeah. Like, uh, must see TV. Check that out. Uh, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. Like, yeah, right. Child. He's like, got some cool glasses. To, and... like, sit on one of the consoles and read us a book. Yeah. Don't take his word for it. The Romulans are here. Yeah. Uh, he would go on to roles in film and TV to this day, becoming an incredibly prolific voice actor for animation and video games. He's also made many appearances as himself on The Big Bang Theory during its 12-season run. He's the executive producer and host of Tabletop, a show where he and guests play tabletop games, and he's become a geek icon and general ambassador for the geek community. Not too shabby for a troublesome little man-child in a lousy sweater. Well... It occurred to me when I was preparing for this episode, uh, we talked a little bit about Wesley um, as a character last time that you were on uh, and his perception in fandom as a, like a Mary Sue type character. And it doesn't really help that Gene Roddenberry's middle name is Wesley. <laughs> and Roddenberry, <laughs> Roddenberry has said in interviews uh, that Wesley is modeled after himself at, at the age of 14. So whatever you think of him, he is kind of an author insert character in this case. Yeah. No, I think Mary Sue is probably fair. Yeah, and, and you know that doesn't mean a Mary Sue can't be enjoyable. Oh, absolutely, and the term, of course, comes from uh, a fanfic by Trek fan Paula Smith, who was trying to lampoon what she saw as bad characterization in other <laughs> fanfics at the time. And I was thinking, like, is author insertion all that great of a sin? I was trying to think of examples of like positive, good author insertion or author avatars in other stories. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily that much of a sin, and and. It depends on how loosely you define author insertion, because of course it's a. I, I, I mean, I want to say postmodern, but it's it's not even just postmodern. Uh, you know, to to use the author as a character in one's own work is popular in postmodernism, but Chaucer did it. Yeah. Uh, and the so did Cervantes. Like, there's a there's a lot of writers who have appeared in their own works as themselves. Uh, so it's fan. Is it fancy if you use your own name? But not fancy if you don't. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, I, I, I'm not sure. Um, so, and I think that I think that a lot of, you know, the protagonists of fantasy and science fiction books take a lot from their authors. Uh, there is a certain, uh, you know, element of uh, the fantasy of of being at the center of this this story, and yeah. you know, a lot of, a lot of people Gene do wanted. just put themselves in it. You yeah. know. So I don't necessarily think it's a it's a terrible thing. You know, a lot of my protagonists have black hair. I just think black <laughs> hair, I just think black hair is really pretty. But sure. you know, I, like... <laughs> uh, yes, and, and uh, yeah. of the classics. Um, I, Bourget put a lot, himself in a lot of his stories, and I think like yeah. I think he did it because a lot of the thing he wasn't. I don't think people would try to wedge him into like sci-fi maybe fantasy but a lot of the concepts that he was trying to talk about were so weird and so ungrounded that I think maybe he just thought I'll just make it me like I met a guy one day and he told me about this thing that you could see everywhere on earth or whatever and so it sort of grounds it and like Vonnegut you know has Kilgore Trout or or whatever but yeah if it's not commentary it it could be uh, like you mentioned I think Gene just wanted to be in this world. Like I think he just yeah. wanted to make sure he was on the Enterprise. Well, I mean, I can tell you that Borges came from a tradition. I mean, 
came from really in along with Marquez invented the tradition of, of magical realism, mm -hmm. which had as its sort of organizing principle um, to treat the uh, unusual events with uh, journalistic style. So that inserting of himself is part of, you know, that of journalism, you know, the journalist is part of journalism the, sure. the person interviewing the person uh, embedded and all of that. So I think that that came from that same inspiration of, uh, of, of journalistic uh, treatment of, of unusual, if not fantastical subjects. Yeah, totally fantastical, um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think this is actually, uh, I mean, he, kind of, he, he hasn't been in the show for a bit mm. before this. So is this, is this one of the more Mary Sue episodes? Um, I think you could argue that Robin Leffler in this episode is more of the Mary Sue than Wesley is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, in, in that she is practically perfect in every way. Awesomely. But I love Robin. And I think a lot, I've yeah. heard a lot of people say over the years, like, oh, it would have been cool if she had been a more permanent character. Yeah. So I think that she's a great example of, of a, a so overly perfect character that is still effective and uh, likable. Yeah. And I don't want to reduce her to like girl Wesley, but I think that they have a lot of similarities. Um, and, you know, uh, originally when the show was being developed, Bob Justman, the supervising producer, had convinced Gene for a time that she should, or Wesley should be a girl, be Leslie mm. Crusher, um, mm. which that eventually got changed back, but that could have been interesting. Um, yeah. No less than publishing giant and periodical of record, Maxim Magazine held a poll mm -hmm. of the worst sci-fi characters, and Wesley came in second only to Jar Jar. Oh, that's Consider nice. the readership of the source, I guess. <laughs> But so, you know, he's he's up there. Um, yeah. And I don't like what I said before. I do think it's unjustified. But numbers don't lie. In researching for this episode, I found an interesting phenomena. And thank you to the blog Datascope Analytics for this information. But the presence of Wesley in an episode has a statistical impact on the IMDb ratings of that particular TNG episode. Specifically, the median IMDb rating of episodes without Wesley is 7.4, and when Wesley is, or excuse me, 7.5, and when Wesley is in an episode, it's 6.95. Hmm. So, as, I mean, if you put any faith in IMDb ratings, but he sort of pulls it down, and then it goes on from there. When Wesley talks in an episode, the ratings get successively lower, and the more he talks, the lower the ratings get going down mm. to like the mid, you know, sixes. But it's funny because this episode is the one that features Wesley's uh, the most amount of lines. He has like 114 lines in this episode. So this is like the Wesley Crusher episode. And it's got a rating of 7.4, which is right on the median for uh, all the episodes together. So it's like if you give, it's like if you push hard enough people <laughs> like Wesley or it's like if you yeah. do a joke over and over again then it's like not funny and then it's really not funny <laughs> and it kind of comes back around maybe it's the capability of Wesley in this episode that people responded to well and he's a little older you know yeah you know, he's not quite as much of the punk kid and he's been to Starfleet Academy so you can kind of buy that he's had a training montage or something <laughs> yeah uh, and and like and I think you know when he's been gone for a while you feel a little better about seeing him again yeah uh, you're like, oh, hey, buddy. Uh, and, you know, it is just uh, I'm going to make fun of this episode a lot. Oh, but it go is for a it. good episode. <laughs> like uh, it's 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 not something that um, we've really seen very much of. We don't see anybody play video games in the future. Yeah. Uh, except for this episode. Yeah. And 
uh, that's not realistic at all. We we see uh, the weird martial arts on the holodeck stuff. Uh, yeah, which is always very strange and awkward. Um, I can imagine but, that the holodeck might supersede like handheld video games, you know, or two D video games. But there would be. They're, they're all gamers. They're all like LARPing on the holodeck. I mean, that's... And they all have to schedule time on the holodeck. Yeah, so, right. Like, there's, you know, you would definitely have a, a headset in your room. You know, that that's that would 100% be a thing this far in the sure, future. Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I've always, I've written uh, quite a bit actually about uh, the sort of painful dorkiness of everybody in Star Trek that, you know, <laughs> their, their hobbies are... LARPing on tall ships and pretending they're Horatio yeah, yeah. Hornblower and things like that. Yeah. Um, no one, no one is cool uh, in Star Trek at all. And like one of the things about it is that there is no trashy entertainment. So this is like the only trashy entertainment you see in Star Trek, really, until we get to Quark. And even Quark, it's it's sort of hand waved away. Yeah. Um, so I actually I think this episode is is just a really uh, good and fast paced episode anyway. So you don't necessarily mind. And I kind of find it it is just a little uh, realistic. At first, I was like, would the teenagers really be the only ones who aren't playing the video game? But actually, <laughs> if if your mom is the one who's playing it first, yeah, yeah, you're not touching that. Uh, <laughs> ropes, uh, not not cool at all. And uh, like if uh, if you're we see everyone's O face in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We begin like, on Riker's O face. It's so painful uh, for these teenagers just to have to watch a bunch of adults going around in like various states of gasm. Yeah. Uh, like I can actually entirely buy that they would be not into it at all. And so that they're the ones that save the day kind of works. Yeah. I love the fact that, you know, halfway through the episode, Crusher comes to her quarters, you know, to like just force the game on Wesley. And oh she's God. like, what is that? Oh, thank God my, my son and his girlfriend are making sex noises on a bed. You know, like, <laughs> I thought maybe they'd be doing something else. Um, you're a gamer, so I know you have a perspective on yeah. this. And you mentioned before, this is a crappy game. <laughs> but this game sucks. every time you, you score, you get heroin, a little hit of yeah, heroin, I guess. So that, you know. that has some merit. But um, I would think that the Federation citizens, and you, I loved your point about the fact that this is the first quote unquote, you know, sort of lowbrow entertainment we see in their universe. But I think they'd have the self possession to know that they're being drugged by a game, you know, or, or, you know, you can imagine in the, in their accepting universe, they've got recreational drugs, um, and pastimes that require some prudence in indulging. Um, you know, we see people like Barkley, who's a rarity. He has a problem with, you know, the, the holodeck and overusing it, but, um, you'd think that, and I, I know there's like mind control rays or whatever in the thing as well, but the second that you put on this game and you're not in on Ryza, you're in a uniform and you're like, Ooh, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to save this for later. I'm going to you know, put this under my pillow and I'm going to play this later. But immediately everybody is sort of sucked into this thing. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about how this actually works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, sometimes they're like suspicious and they're acting all creepy. Yeah. And other times they're really open about, hey, just try this game. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to that part of the episode because I have, I have a lot of questions about this device. But um, especially because it, it's kind of inconsistent. They must They must get like version 2.0 later on because in the beginning people are still kind of functional yeah at the first couple of levels and then by the end the minute you put it on you're you're gone um so i don't know does the federation have this kind of uh, like do federation citizens have enough self-control to uh not 
play heroin wars um, <laughs> uh, or angry heroin. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, it, I guess it depends. We've never really gotten into uh, how much recreational drugs are approved of or available. You would think that they would be replicatable anyway. Yeah. Uh, like if they have synthahol, they could have heroin that doesn't um, yeah. that gives you a little 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 shot but it doesn't it's not addictive or something yeah like i that. don't know um i mean <laughs> beverly is all in right away and if picard's all in that's one of my major questions how did they get picard to play a video game <laughs> yeah how'd they get Worf to do it i mean did they so the, you could you could sort of fan wave it by saying uh they forced them like they do with wesley yeah but, how'd but they uh, hold I, I actually prefer to imagine <laughs> them trying to sell jean-luc picard on playing a shitty video game right right like, like come on it's candy crush it's fine bejeweled like i i really uh just prefer to imagine what that scene would have been like yeah <laughs> I, I, maybe they can, um, like you said, when there's a 2.0, they can upgrade like the graphics or what the game is about. So like Worf is like putting severed heads, you know, in, in abysses yeah, or something no, like it, that. It, Worf's easy. You just tell him it's an ancient Klingon warrior game and he'll be right, he'll yeah. play it. <laughs> it's, or like but, uh, Troy's is a, a chocolate cookie clicker or something like that. Yeah, she, yeah, she does that. Uh, I mean, actually, I would think that if you were remaking this episode now, you might do it that way where the game is, you know, whatever uh, would appeal to each person. Um, sure. But like, I don't think they could even imagine coding that many versions of a game or or an adaptable game that way. Yeah. Uh, back in 1991, they must have put together like a virtual console version for Jody's visor because he doesn't, his eyes don't work. <laughs> like you can literally. How does can. that not come up? <laughs> yeah, I don't in know. In this episode, how does it not come up? I, you, you cannot see how emphatically I am gesticulating right now. Like how <laughs> I can does hear it, it not come up that, that this is a thing that goes directly into your eyeballs and yeah. Jordy's into it. Like his eyeballs don't work. Yeah. Like that. How is that not? You, you've you got to get rid of Jordy the same way you get rid of Data. Right. Point. Yeah. You just knock him out or you yeah. lock him in a cupboard or something. Uh, but if, if we're going to start picks. getting into it, start from the beginning. This is another episode where Riker's dick ruins things for everyone. <laughs> Riker, <laughs> Riker brought something back from Ryza as something they've heard before. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, like we're, we're, we're forced to suffer through yet another scene of uh, Riker's game with the ladies, it's which weird. he has none. Yeah. I mean, we open on a hotel room in Sedona and like, <laughs> I don't want to yuck anybody's yum, but this is not how I imagined Riker's game to, to work. Cool. It's awful. Uh, and then, you know, he, even he is just completely not suspicious of anything. Like how many problems have we had with Riza in the past? Cause it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, like, sure. I'll put a, completely mysterious headset on my head like <laughs> yeah. that seems fine yeah. that's a normal sex thing that like sexful people do sexfully after <laughs> sex on risa sure. like no this is weird and like Riker is not suspicious at all because he does not think uh when on risa yeah uh and then like so he comes back and they immediately have to make a bunch more of them. And this is where one of my questions about this game comes in. How does the replicator happy to make this game, happy to make hundreds of this? And it doesn't like ping Picard's desktop and be like, I'm making a bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. should, you should do something about the brainwashing machine yeah. that I have been asked to make. <laughs> like, uh, like the replicator has no problem bad chips and all making this making hundreds of this thing i guess if you get the exo he's got he gets the same notification so he can turn it off or, or something like that he's got the codes to to make uh, this work yeah. yeah i guess but um 
Yeah, so, you know, uh, uh, he comes back and he's like, I got, yeah, exactly like you say, I brought something back from Riza. Everyone needs to try it. And nobody's like, I don't want your gross, like, swinger game. I don't, like, <laughs> <Right>. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, everyone's just all in. Um, and then there's this whole weird scene with Troy where, oh, like, boy. she has more to say about chocolate yes. than she has had to say in several episodes about anything. Yes. Uh, and I feel like they wanted to make some kind of addiction parallel or some kind of like erotic like some kind of pleasure like sensuality yeah 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 yeah. but it just comes off weird and i feel like uh marina sirtis probably hated every word she had to say about chocolate on that show probably it's so so infantilizing and i robin leffler really shows what what female characters could have been like on the show if they had taken them <laughs> yes, seriously and not yes. had to sexualize them every second of every day. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of sad that both those things happen in the same episode. Eating her ch- uh, chocolate ice yeah. cream with fudge and chocolate chips uh, and a side and, like, of cacao beans. And, yeah. monologue yeah. in a 42 minute episode about how to eat. Like we know how to eat chocolate, man. We know how to eat a Sunday. You don't have to get into it, it like it's, it, we don't this is science fiction <laughs> but we don't need that level of exposition it does plant the flag as i think this might be like the horniest episode of star trek oh god it's so it's a very horny episode yeah. and it, like before um beverly's scottish space ghost episode it is <laughs> yeah. easily like the most uncomfortable we can be around beverly beverly and all of the adults yeah uh, uh, uh yeah like th- i think like watching this as a child like It'll put you off sex for a while. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> just... Beverly one is is horny. I think I read. Um, don't quote me on this, but that that's also kind of a metaphor for addiction. Um, sort of diving sure, into something, sure. you know, and, and being I... isolated. But yeah, I think this one tops it in terms of, except for the, like the general low level horniness that was all over Enterprise. This is definitely um, extremely uh, extremely horny. Oh yeah, and you know, and the funny thing is, so I was talking about how everyone's a painful dork. They're all super painful dorks at Wesley's welcome home party. Like, yeah, like, hey, Latin, buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Worf's like, I made you a cake. Yeah, are they already pod people God at this cake. point? Like, what? <laughs> I, it's so weird. And, and like, oh, God. And then they're just like, oh, I know you're on vacation, but let's do work. Yeah, they, <laughs> hey, yeah, they immediately put him to work. That makes it makes sense. Like, he's a cadet. But... I guess it doesn't sound like it's an urgent thing at all either. It's just like, go do your chores. Yeah, right. Uh, like, it, like, I guess when everyone comes home from college, you still like, you need to pick up around the house and help. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Come out to the garage with me. Yeah. Kind yeah. That, like, the first thing they say to him is like, you need to go help out in engineering. Uh, like, thanks, dad. But, I, th- I thought maybe they were writing data. Uh, data's fake laugh is the best moment in the episode. Um, <laughs> I thought that they were maybe writing data like a little extra awkward to juxtapose that with how much more self-possessed uh, Wesley is now. Because Data immediately starts talking about his years in the Academy, which I'm trying to imagine Data in the Academy, but were apparently very hard. And Jordy's like, oh, yeah, you know, you got to you got to get him back with the good. You got to have the some kind of liquid spray out of some kind of device. That's that's a theme at the Academy for our pranks. And so he kind of looks like he feels like more of an equal to data in those scenes to me. Yeah, it definitely there's a, a, a strong contrast. And, and in that party scene, like Wesley seems like the only relaxed person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this is after Riker is into the game. 
Right. Like, right. He, he, he's still got he's got a little heroin in him and he is still yeah. not nearly as chill as Wesley. And that, I think you're right. That that's part of why Wesley is, is, is cool in this episode. Should be Lou uh, Reed in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody else is just <laughs> either a, a stiff dork or uh, just wait. Uh, you don't want to walk into a room. It's just sploosh everywhere. Yeah. Uh, like this is. Nobody wants to be around any adult in this episode. Yeah. And of course, the, it's the nerds that save the day. And I love the fact that yeah. uh, they're going to, you know, hook it up to the computer before they put it on. Uh, and of course, discover the evil secret of it. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like there must have been a draft of this where, um, the, the romantic connection between Robin and Wesley is more than just like, oh, I guess they banged at the end. Mm. Uh, because they bring up the Sadie Hawkins dance, right? Yeah. Mm hmm. Which really, do, they, do you really think they still have Sadie Hawkins dances in the future? I think, like gender equality is a little more on know. the up and up than that. I mean, I feel like a lot of people today don't know what a Sadie Hawkins dance is. Yeah, it's traditions die hard, especially in the military, but it's, it is really stretching credulity to think that they would still do that. But I feel like there must have been a draft where Wesley felt awkward around girls, and that's why Sadie Hawkins came up and the game like offered a way to not be. Because okay. otherwise, why are you talking about it? Why, yeah. are you, why are we talking about Sadie Hawkins? It's weird. Um, yeah, there's kind yeah, of there's yeah. kind of three hits in this because it's kind of an anti video game thing. It's kind of an anti drug thing, and it's kind of an anti sex thing. Yeah. Yep. That's uh, because everyone's a dork in the future. <laughs> <laughs> As like keep no one stay no dorky, cool stay alive. Yeah. yeah. Well, true, but, uh, I mean, the number of times. It's mostly Riker and Troy, let's be honest. But uh, the number of times uh, having sex with somebody you shouldn't have gets the entire shift in trouble. Yeah, is very high. Yeah, although it's it seems not often consensual with Troy, which is a whole other podcast. I oh, think. yeah, that is. It's, yeah. Anyway, we'll move past that. It's, it's just a huge bummer. Um, the biggest complaints that I hear about this episode generally, um, whether they're in good faith or not, is that. It's it's weird that some these adults would get addicted to this, and I'm like, this is this is sci-fi, you know? What I mean, like all kinds of things yeah. can happen on a weekly show, but it is a little weird that they they do a pretty good job of showing that Jordy is getting a little stressed out because of all these experiments they have to do in in the cluster, and and we we have like one or two hits at him, little little bits where it's like, try this, nah, I'm too busy right now, and Riker finally gets him to a point. After Data has been like incapacitated, which is like, hey, your friend's dead. Play this game. You'll feel better. Like, um, I like that they kind of force him into doing it uh, sort of organically because he's stressed out. But it, there isn't any really good time f to suggest it to him if he's really stressed <laughs> out. Yeah. And, you know, they get rid of Data immediately. Yeah. Which everyone trying to take over the Enterprise should do. Uh, yeah, that it, off switch, you know, they set it up in the first I season and it pays dividends. I believe this is the episode they pay off the off switch yeah. on. Like for such a minor episode, this is the moment where they're like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll use that obvious thing. Just glue it up so it, you can never yeah. use it again. Like I don't understand. <laughs> or, you know, I, I don't want to get too blue put for tape uh, over this it. podcast. But like, you know, you don't have to put it on his neck. You could put it somewhere less accessible <laughs> so you gotta really want to turn data off now i'm trying to guess which where it's gonna be yeah <laughs> but uh but yeah um it, it 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 i i can't believe this is for this plot yeah uh someone's finally smart enough to turn data off uh but yeah and so we have this whole kind of early part of the episode where we see the like 
headsets start to proliferate. And we spend that time sort of investing in Wesley and Robin's relationship, uh, which involves some kind of date-like thing where she rolls up in orange leather and he rolls up in a couch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. like, it is a I mean it's not a classic Wesley sweater uh, but it's something heavily upholstered yeah. uh, shoulder pads and hers is like tight orange leather cool uh, it's her outfit's super 90s though yeah it's like late 80s early 90s share or something yeah, like that yeah this whole jumpsuit thing again they're the ones acting like adults where like this druggie comes up to their table <laughs> <laughs> like knocking things over like hey man you want to hit uh it's this, basically uh... a dare video <laughs> yeah yeah right <laughs> uh and it it it, it kind of goes on like that in this very after school special this is how drugs take over your school yeah uh kind of thing um and like any after school special it kind of has to end as soon as the helen hunt jumps out of the window or whatever you know it's like there is no there is no place to go. So everybody just goes back to their jobs. Nobody gets in trouble. Um, and like we never see uh, – kind of interestingly, we never see the ship listing or anything. Yeah. Like they're never out of it enough that they're not doing their jobs yeah. or we would be in serious trouble. Uh, and later on in the episode, everyone seems completely composmentous except that they are, are willing to do whatever this Qatarian woman says. Yeah. But they're – you know, they're not zombies at all. They are having conversations back and forth with her. So, again, how does this work? How does this brainwashing work? Uh, it's comprehensive. It, yeah. Yeah, it is a, it is a very thorough uh, brainwashing job. Um, but, yeah, before all that happens, the main, the, the main danger seems to be that everyone is playing the game all the time. Mm. And I got to say, you know, we spent some time talking about the quarantine. Uh, everyone's playing Animal Crossing all the time. And, you know, <laughs> you don't even get a heroin hit from that. And it seems all right. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, play this, really... play this game. You start in debt when it begins. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not like this game isn't even multiplayer. Uh, like you, <laughs> I, I do think on, on the Enterprise, like a, a game like Animal Crossing would be crazy popular. Like come over to my island. But like, and I want to actually deal with you in my quarters. That's. Like I've been working all day. I don't care. Right. Uh, but I think that a, 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 like a multiplayer game like that would be very popular in Star Trek. But this isn't even multiplayer. It's just it doesn't even have any skill to it. They say later on in the episode, like, oh, uh, you get to higher levels if you just let go and let it happen. Yeah, it, it plays itself. itself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a gamer. And I can tell you that's not the game that takes over the world. Right. Uh, like you need to have. A, we all know now with microtransactions that the way to truly get someone addicted is to have just enough skill uh, that they feel like they're in control of it. Yeah. Uh, if whatever the endorphin hit, uh, once it wore off, it created like a craving for more than it said. Yeah. It would be like, I'm almost at level 47 through gritted teeth yeah yeah if everybody's blissed out they just take it off and go to sleep or something and i i mean another of my questions is uh the ferengi need to get on this and institute microtransactions how is this not their gig uh, that would be great if we saw it in the background of ds9 it's been kind of neutered you know <laughs> yeah. you can you can only play 20 <laughs> levels and then it shuts down yeah quark's got but everybody it, it, playing it it does seem like a Ferengi style or at least a Quark style plan, you know, yeah. to capitalize on, on the kind of weakness and vices like that. But it's not really vice because it's just making you feel good. 
but the sounds everybody makes are just so sexual. Yes. It's very uncomfortable when they walk in and Robin and, and Wesley are on the bed, sweaty, yeah. gasping. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's, it's a lot. Uh, and, and it's, it's network television, but it's really one of the more sexual things you will ever see on early nineties network television. Yeah. Before, like Twin Peaks comes along. But it was, well, <laughs> but in that <laughs> great tradition of sci-fi, if it's, it's something else though. So it's, so it's yeah. fine. Um, like that episode uh, of the first season where the guys are, um, they're junkies basically. Like they need their hit of the medicine. And there's this mm. great scene where, they finally get this medicine and they're going to give it to the two guys. And they're both like, come on, man, come on. And there's a slow pan into like Dr. Crusher's face. And she's like, oh, my God, these guys are junkies. It's like, yeah, that's what the <laughs> entire episode has been about. But yeah. Welcome to the episode. Maybe you now. don't see that in the 24th century. <laughs> but yeah, I see this guy lives on my corner. Um, yeah. No, I, don't, I mean, I don't buy necessarily that there's no addiction or I mean, catch the light and all that. But like no yeah. addiction in, the, in this era. Like. They're they're pretty far flung into the stars. Not every place is just really clean counters and and calm men. Well, do we? Um. <laughs> yeah, right. We've seen in Discovery and in Picard um, the kind of sort of uh, seedier side of Federation yeah. life. Do you think you know we've got this idea of the Federation as this perfect you know um, Sunday school paradise? Do you think that that was influenced by the fact that you can only get away with so much on TV? And now that we're seeing you know, the 25th century in Picard, it's getting a little dirtier because that's a good place maybe to take the Federation, but also because we can show that and say the F word and, and whatnot. I mean, I think yes and no. We all know that Roddenberry had a whole mission statement about yeah, yeah. that back yeah. in the day. But I think that by the time you get to the late 80s, you can show a lot on TV. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of... And they're syndicated, pretty, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pretty spicy stuff going on uh with you know dynasty and i don't know when was 21 jump street like that was around that time yeah yeah so like i i don't necessarily think it's the case for next gen uh and they do even in next gen try to push things a little past where roddenberry felt that all the problems would be gone i mean the problem with with roddenberry's mission statement as as well nicely minded as it is is it makes finding conflict for a serialized television show yeah. uh very difficult yeah. <laughs> because uh if people aren't having interpersonal conflict which is another one of his perci uh and yeah, if they're not yeah. having cultural conflict within their own culture all that all that's left is intercultural conflict yeah uh and that is rough to have uh hundreds of episodes uh that are self-contained with only a few conflict options. Um, and I actually, I've personally find, um, you know, the big Romulan or, or Klingon episodes, not, not as endearing or as hmm. uh, rewatchable as episodes like this, yeah. which are you know self-contained and more about, uh, you know, a specific sort of threat to characters. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, it, this is 1991, so Twin Peaks has it is is going to start airing immediately after this, if yeah. not right before. Uh, and I, I talk about Twin Peaks a lot, but <laughs> part of the reason for that is it's a real watershed moment in television, um, in terms of a television show that looked like a movie every week. Yeah, uh, serialized storytelling that took over the course of a season rather than an episode, uh, and you know. Kyle McLaughlin, who came from movies, so you have a big movie star coming into uh, television. Hey, kids, that used to be really unusual. There did not <laughs> used to be a pipeline that went that way. Yeah. 
Uh, well, Patrick like Stewart was in Dune <laughs> with Kyle yeah, MacLachlan. He <laughs> uh, he's British, so yeah. they're different. Yeah. Um, and like it, it, it became Twin Peaks was a real change in what television could do, and so it, there really is kind of a before and after uh, as far as it goes. And then after Twin Peaks ends, X Files picks up almost immediately, yeah. and we we enter it's, '90s television. Yeah, a whole new age. Uh, it is a whole new age. Uh, so. This episode, um, I, I feel like it goes for uncomfortable rather than uh, gritty, which is what we're doing now with Discovery and Picard. So now we're into gritty science fiction, right. which is the trend now. Yeah. Um, and are we doing that because we can show more on television? We can show more more cheaply. Uh, you know, a lot of these effects-heavy episodes they would never have been able to do back in the day that, you know, one of those episodes would have blown the whole season's budget. Yeah. But uh, they're trying to do serialized storytelling instead of episodic storytelling, which is not necessarily a natural fit for Star Trek. And I know a lot of fans don't like it, but it's what it is right now. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're trying to get real far away from that Roddenberry um, mission statement. And I think that's part of why we haven't seen any post Voyager, Star Trek until Picard, uh, because if you put it, if you make a prequel, you don't have to have, you know, you don't have to marry that idea that uh, all, all sources of conflict are gone. You can have people acting the fool a little more. Um, and if you put it post Voyager, then you have to deal with all of that. Yeah. Uh, but Picard is post Voyager. Well, it's not <laughs> eh, sort of. Well, it is, and, and something terrible happens to all the characters from the earlier shows. Yeah, it is post Voyager. Yeah. Sort of not not there's no big technological jump uh, as between uh tos and, and next gen though that's, um, that's something that let me down about picard as well i mean there's certainly like a sweeping like fun adventure story there but this was our first view of the future of the future and we, yeah and we <laughs> well and we and we see these glimpses because i wanted to see the federation and we see glimpses that give you kind of like tantalizing ideas about maybe where the federation has gone in the intervening time but they don't really unite into like a mission statement you know what i mean like a thesis yeah. about what what the future's like now there are some kind of depressing dystopic ideas that we see but they don't exactly build on those the suggestions we got before from ds9 about maybe where the federation was heading they seem like afterthoughts and so i hope that in a picard season two we will be introduced to like the world at large um in the federation well, everyone in the Federation seems like a huge dick. They're Picard. all jerks. Uh, like, they, they, they really, but to be fair, the admirals have always been Yeah, bad. but even rank and uh, file people are just like, just. Yeah, no, everyone just seems like kind of they a hate, jerk. Yeah, they don't like uh, their lives. I don't know. No, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I think the one thing we are seeing with Picard um, is, so, you know, the Nobel effect this is roundabout, but I'm going to get there. Yeah. Um, the Nobel effect is that basically uh, it's a lot harder to get a Nobel Prize these days than it used to be okay. because a lot of the sort of low-hanging fruit of science has been discovered and gotten prizes. And now uh, the average age is much older because you have to go a lot further to get a discovery worthy of a Nobel Prize hmm. uh, than, than you used to. And they are more incremental um, discoveries than than they were back in the day. So I feel like there is a similar thing with science fiction in that um, there was a time when all you had to do was sort of take space travel even a little bit seriously, and it was revolutionary, and you would be showered in, in fans and awards forever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and 
now things are a little more complicated and we uh, fans are a lot savvier uh, than they used to be because there's just so much more out there that people have seen by the time they ever come to your show or your book. Mm-hmm. And so uh, with Picard, we're seeing that nobody is really interested in a planet just having one crop or one culture anymore yeah. uh, or you know, the Federation being one thing and an entire empire of millions of people uh, of some of another species being logical or, you know, passionate or just having one attribute. People aren't uh, interested in that kind of science fiction in the same way anymore because we've seen it, a lot of it. And now we want things that feel more realistic to us. So we have uh, a lot of different star systems and individual cities or towns or uh, star bases that have their own culture. And that feel, that makes the world building feel more real to an audience yeah. where whereas you know in another time the the other approach made that audience uh feel more real and more invested and so i think that we're kind of seeing that uh with picard we're seeing um kind of a a, a technology creep in in storytelling uh that we we need to uh have things be a little more complex and um I'm looking for a word and I'm not finding it here, uh, kind of atomized. Uh, we want it down on the micro level rather than the macro level. Uh, we mm-hmm. want to see the dirt on the streets and we, we, we don't want to see the clean uh, uh, consoles anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and because fans are so savvy, they will ask a thousand questions. And so yeah, it's a lot right. easier uh, to, to pass off a culture as being citywide than planet-wide. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and and I think Firefly was a huge uh, influence on Picard as well. Every time they land somewhere, it looks like it could be right out of Firefly. Yeah, uh, very dusty. <laughs> and, and so I, I just think that there is a, a lot has changed in televised science fiction uh, between Next Gen and Picard. And they're really trying to sort of incorporate all of it. Yeah. And so unfortunately, that makes it feel a little unfocused. Uh, and maybe they will they will pick just Firefly or, or, or just BSG uh, or, or something uh, in the second season to be a little more um, tonally consistent. Uh, I can see fans getting frustrated or bored with the science fiction they've seen. It's the Federation citizens being bored with their amazing world that yeah. is stopping me up. Like they were supposed to have fixed that. Do you know what I mean? We were supposed to be, yeah. uh, have dedicate our lives to bettering ourselves and others and, and I'm not saying, you know, it's your story. Do whatever you want. And also, how long can you keep 50 years of lotus eating going? But, like, why <laughs> is everybody a jerk? Do you know what I mean? Like, what what has happened? I've, clearly, you know, Mars is on fire. That's a problem. But, you know, it has that optimism dimmed in yeah. in their future. And if so, you can't just do that and then not explore it. Like, you have to get into that. Well, do you think it's it, it has something? I mean, there's the whole thing with the destruction of... Romulus. I feel like Star Trek yeah. can't get away r- right now from like wanting to have this 9/11 event. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. It happened with the movies and San Francisco and like do you feel like it might have something to do with that with them yeah. always wanting to have It could. I think this. I think Picard is just a combination of the factors that they had. Like, you know, it was a pantry meal. What do we have? And we've mm-hmm. got Patrick Stewart who we've God willing, it goes on forever, but we're going to. But he make, can't run fast. We got to make something now. <laughs> yeah, Brett Spiner's in, and so we have to do this story. But what they end up doing is showing us all these tantalizing ideas about how the Federation will deal with honest to God intelligent 
artificial life. You know, what are they going to do with this? That's a story in a show in itself. They yada, yada, yada it. And then we end up 25 years later and there's no more synths because they've been banned. And it's like, no, no, I wanted to see the part before this. Like, yeah, what's no, that? I, I, I get that. And part of it has got to be just that it's a lot fewer episodes. It's, yeah, uh, yeah it You know, there's not, there's not room for episodes where you can just explore one idea in one corner of this world and illuminate that. Yeah. But, you know, as long as we're on Picard, I'm going to point out that Picard is um, Mass Effect, the television series. You think so? Uh, I don't know if you've played Mass Effect. Oh, yes, of course, um, all of them. But uh, it is, which is weird because Mass Effect happened because they couldn't get the IP for Star Trek. Oh, you, oh uh, yes. Okay, yeah. So the entire plot of Picard with the synths and everything, in fact, uh, it's point outable that they have never referred to artificial beings as synths until now, but that is what they call them in Mass Effect. Um it is the plot of of the Mass Effect game. The synths uh, are the are the Geth. They've been yeah. like banned, and yeah, yeah. But not just the Geth. All you know, Edie and everything well, as well. Sure, and then, yeah. and then the Reaper comes in at the end. Like it, it's it, it's it literally is, tentacles from outside the it's galaxy. Literally yeah. a Reaper. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely uh, right. And, and the whole thing about you know the the AI can call for a big like it's all Mass Effect. It is and constructing uh, a beacon so. to yeah. Yeah, it's very strangely Mass Effecty. Um, and so I think that they probably just had too many influences going on, and then somebody was binge playing Mass Effect uh, right before they got hired for this. Um, right. Like, that's my theory, because it, it's just too similar. Um, I like that... the idea that Akiva Goldsman is just, he's wrapping up, you know, <laughs> Mass Effect 3. Oh, I got a writer's meeting. And Patrick Stewart's not a gamer, so he's like, okay, um, there's octopuses that live outside the galaxy. Listen to me, listen. Yeah. <laughs> If I have a, a disappointment um, with Picard, other than that, boy, that the middle just really sags. Yeah. Um, is is that it's just uh, it's not enough itself. It's every, it's it's so many other shows of the last ten or fifteen years. Yeah. Uh, and and little bits and pieces of them taken apart and reassembled into something that's cool and affecting, but is it doesn't feel like its own thing yet. Yeah, it doesn't feel that way in the way that Discovery for um, some of the faults that it has felt different yep. to me. Felt like its own world. They're doing their own thing. Yeah, it's the DLC of shows. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> it absolutely is a DLC. Yeah, um, and you know, uh, it's season one. When has yeah, there ever been? There's season never been a one? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, ironically, Discovery probably does have the best season one of any. Yeah, it's uh, pretty good. Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but at the same time, how many seasons are we going to get of Picard? Uh, so if we only end up with two, this is half. So, right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, at least we got a lot of seven in there. That was nice. Yeah. She got to, she got to not wear a cat suit. That's good for her. <laughs> no, she I, got I, to I, wear... I, feel, I feel good for her. She got to wear like pants. And I think, pants. you know, I, I, I've been watching Voyager doing the whole, th uh, whole series and I noticed. Oh, I have too. I just binge the whole series. Yeah. I just, I noticed <laughs> that like every time, because especially later on, they definitely give her a chance to wear regular clothes, but you can see under those clothes, I, she's still wearing the corset. Pretty sure she's still wearing and it. It's yeah. just like, what, why did you let your agent agree to that in the contract? But yeah, it's nice to see her in just regular clothes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's good stuff about Picard and I, I think the first episode is just spectacular, mm -hmm. but, um, there it goes, it goes weird. Uh, so I don't know, but uh, but back to the game. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I I do think um, 
it is a really good episode. Although it, it, it is strange how they show. Oh, oh, I guess Wesley had sex. Yee. Is that yeah. is that what you got out of that? Yeah, it is. Okay. Because she talks about his birthmark. Yeah, I <laughs> I thought that they built plaus- enough plausible deniability in that because uh, he mentions it that it's a rumor. He doesn't have a birthmark on his face, man. Well, yeah, but I mean, he does say who started that rumor about the birthmark. So if you were too uh, scandalized by the idea of Wesley Crusher getting it on, I think you could believe that it was all. I, they definitely banged. Like they're in his corners. <laughs> Talking about his birthmark. They are ve- like, yeah, uh, and they are very intimate with each other. Uh, uh, they're very, yeah. A post-bang level of int- intimacy. I don't believe that Wesley Crusher has ever had enough cool in his body to be able to, like, lightly kiss a girl on a cheek he hasn't already had sex with. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but he's not that guy. He's not Riker. I can see it. Uh, like, so... It is a sort of strange seg at the end. But it this is a, this is a very moralistic episode. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, yeah. And I feel like the universe we're in with Star Trek now is a very amoral, a very amoralistic universe. Yeah. Uh, We don't like the. I can't imagine them making an episode like this now. Uh, Not only because they wouldn't want to offend gamers, who is Star Trek's bread and butter these days, (laughs) but just because um, a heavy handed moral like this, I don't think flies with the modern audience. We don't really want to be preached at. And uh, I, I think people would just be entirely put off by it but i think the idea Hmm. of an addictive game probably would make it into a modern trek episode it just wouldn't end like this yeah and the way that trek is navigating that jump between just staunch morality to immorality but also just having the freedom to tell whatever kind of story is kind of the problem like the trek franchise is a 50 year old teenager who has discovered mm. a few swear words, you know, and is now yeah. just acting out. Oh, they're so out. happy they can swear. Yeah. <laughs> and I think and I think that will settle down as the franchise continues and they find some new synthesis of being able to have this universe that's supposed to be idealistic, but also, you know, be able to show. Because even on TNG, they'd always go into like a, a Star Wars cantina and there'd be some lady with like four hands playing the piano and they were trying yeah. to be kind of gritty and sleazy, but not, not really <laughs> pulling it off. They've wanted yeah. to do that for a while. They have. And I mean, it's it's always sad to see like the 90s drywall sets that they want to make <laughs> dirty and cool. But yeah. they're like, it just never you can always see the plastic underneath it. But um, but yeah, like uh, it's a I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what the Pike series is like. Yeah, because that's the one that has the potential to be most like classic Trek. So I feel like that'll be the <sighs> they could push so all it, of that you know, brave American spaceman stuff into that show. Yes, but they can. I have a sneaking suspicion that it'll be so. very discovery esque. I think that they need to make it more episodic, but they are going to, Oh, they're definitely going to do that. Cause the fans but are they just have to deal it. with the colonialism of star Trek because that's not well, oh, fun for people anymore. You're it's saying, not... you're saying, whereas like Kirk did it and didn't think twice about it, they'll be doing yeah. that type of stuff, but then also being reflecting on, that type of stuff. Well, yeah, Kirk did it and didn't think twice about it. Picard did it, but he felt bad about it. Yeah. Uh, Janeway, it was a whole different situation. Hey, they were under, <laughs> there's a lot of stress. It's a whole other, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, you, you, you can't really put it on the same. Uh, and, and I think the next step is probably maybe don't do it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but it's in the past. So how is that going to 
come out. Yeah. I don't know, but I do know that a, a, a contemporary audience is not just going to want to watch like Pike, uh, bang space ladies through the universe, uh, and like ruin indigenous cultures. Like that's not, <sighs> that's not what's going to happen in that show. Yeah. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what does happen if it stays with the kind of gritty, uh, things aren't that cool attitude or if it if if the optimistic star trek gets its own series yeah, you know yeah do we talk um weird stuff about this episode we were talking about things being uh, gritty and not quite uh as idealistic in star trek but uh this of course uh was written by uh susan sackett who revealed in a memoir that she was um, not only the assistant of roddenberry but his uh longtime lover for Pretty much most I'm of the shocked. time that they were together, yeah. <laughs> and it's ironic and sad that it he died, you know, the the week before this came out, yeah. and she was fired by Majel Barrett <laughs> that <laughs> week. So yeah. she's got a, an episode on TV and uh, she's out of a job. Um, and of course, I mean, we didn't even touch about the, uh, touch on the um, sexism that you find in the games industry. But sexism oh, I mean, and, and God, yeah, it's been a harrowing couple of months for that. Sexism and racism is, of course, there are limiting factors uh, for women and minorities in Hollywood. And there's an anecdote about how Brandon Braga was like hitting on uh, Ashley Judd on on set for all mm. the entire episode. And so people go, well, why didn't we get more Robin Leffler? She would have been great. She probably had wanted nothing to do with the show. And luckily yeah. she went on to stardom in Hollywood. But also but, we know but now. Then, no, yeah. We know now yeah. that she, just, she had a really bad time. Oh, and of course, Braga and, and Jerry Ryan. Yeah. Uh, is all, look. look <laughs> I didn't know being uh, a producer so, was like your dating service. I, I didn't oh, know. Oh, apparently that. it yeah, is. But that's well, true I, look, for a I, lot of people. Been that way in Hollywood for a really long time. I've never understood why in the arts there's just no rules. <laughs> like you don't have to treat people well because yeah. it's art. Uh, like th- that doesn't seem to one doesn't seem to follow the other to me, but it is that way. And it's, uh, the argument is um, just you know, but we've both got experience acting. Like the idea is is that you know if you don't want this part, there's yeah. thousands of people out there. But at the same time, you looked at thousands of people for this part, yeah. and I was the the right one. So which is it? Am I a rare resource or not? Yeah. No, it's it's all it's all pretty messed up, and uh, you know, I I I wouldn't be uninterested in seeing a Star Trek episode that dealt with that uh, hmm. kind of thing because I'm not I'm not sure I buy that goes away when you have replicators and starships either, um, yeah. especially given how Riker treats literally everyone <laughs> well. and, and Kirk too. Um, Maybe in a but, couple years, because um, CBS Trek seems to really be pushing against that trend in, in their casting and writing. I think that's great. And then there's the former CEO of CBS, uh, hmm. Les Moonves. So it's just yep. it's persistent yeah. and everywhere. No, it's it's everywhere, and and it, it's it's not just Hollywood. It's it's gaming industry. It's publishing. It's it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, this is not specific or unique to any one field. Um, what is specific and unique to uh, the arts to gaming to to publishing to movies to that kind of thing is that uh we're all independent contractors and we don't have hr yeah uh you know there's nobody uh, to help us uh there's there's the union but they've been unhelpful in the past uh in hollywood and Mm. uh, a lot of other people don't have one uh so that's part of why this happens because there are shadows that allow it to happen shadowy places where it can happen because there is 
there's no large group advocating for anyone and there's no um, hierarchical structure to deal with it. So that's why it happens. Yeah. And uh, it shouldn't, but uh, I don't have a lot of hope for it ending anytime soon. And, you know, God, how old was Ashley Judd when she filmed this episode? She doesn't look very old. Pretty young. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and still can't escape it. Um and of course, even just writing an episode where you've got this really cool female character whose job is basically to, you know, bang Wesley, solve the mystery and move on. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess that's a choice. But um, it, it sucks because she is a character that, you know, she wasn't in an overly sexualized outfit except for the weird orange jumpsuit for five minutes. Uh, and she wasn't treated like a bimbo. She wasn't... Uh, you know, made fun of at any point. Uh, she wasn't, her, her competence was never questioned. Yeah. Uh, she is uh, a, a very modern character. And I think that's why a lot of young girls like me watching it really liked her yeah. because uh, she's not the butt of anyone's joke. Um, and Troy and Crusher often are, sadly enough, despite, you know, being capable bridge officers, they, they still are. Yeah. Um, so maybe the real Wesley Crusher was Robin Leffler all along. <laughs> maybe it was maybe it was uh i would watch robin left leffler adventure yeah um <laughs> and of course you know she goes out they the uh, tie and authors pick up on her and she has a, yeah. a life in the in the books too yeah oh because the whole rules thing that she has is a gift for any writer oh, yeah and you can do whatever you like want list that. or rules like that is <laughs> yeah. such a such a great uh it's a great tool that we all use and probably overuse yeah. But, um, but yeah, she's awesome. And uh, and of course, this never comes up again, even though how cool uh, I would love to see one of these headsets in the background of a Picard. Oh, yeah. I so, you know in one of those sleazy bars. They, like, they never. Love- <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> they don't really do sequels on, on Trek except for, you know, Q or I suppose. But I just thought it'd be great if, you know, there was one neglected headset, you know, in the in the in the cargo bay of the bottom of the ship or something like that. And like, yeah. Molly or somebody gets their hands on it and then, you know, they become yeah. uh, mind controlled <laughs> and somehow spread it to somewhere else. And yeah, but again, yeah. how does the mind uh, it said like so the mind I feel like the mind control is not very well explained within the episode. When I looked at the uh, uh, alpha afterwards, um, it said that it just makes them open to suggestion but picard uh at the end is like oh we could introduce it to uh starfleet academy so he's actually taking the initiative yeah. in this plan. <laughs> he had a employee of, of the own. month yeah like yeah so it's like this thing this seems to be an incredibly effective uh brainwashing technique yeah i i don't really understand how it can communicate like the higher uh plan here and then have people be all in without being zombie-like and be able to take the initiative on their own. It is some really good programming uh, EA games. Yeah, like <laughs> it, you could take it into a comic book or something and have – because Itana Joel is even like, that's a, that's a pretty good idea. But what yeah. if they're committed to the cause but not the leader necessarily? So they like get rid of Itana Joel and then now there's just yeah. like this hierarchy of people who are ostensibly mind control, but they've got their own plans going on. And like, what's, but what is the ultimate plan to like take over the Federation and – what? I guess it's Atana a- Joel is going to be president. Like I, I just, I, I, yeah. I nominally, get... it's at a Qatarian plot, but it reminds me of the plot with the um the little bugs that uh, get inside I was of them. Just thinking that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Conspiracy. 
I, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. But fortunately, uh, it can be cured by some flashing lights, and you will never <laughs> encounter flashing lights in space. It can be uh, cured by a seizure, than, yeah. Other than <laughs> through Data's little palm beacon, because flashlights. Yeah. That was a, that was a um, that was a sweet scene, though. I wish they'd at least like said it had to be a specific sequence or something. That because like lights flash all the time in space. This has now become a very bad. Plan. Yeah, uh, they do because <laughs> just some flashing lights in the dark. Like, look. Some people's alarm clocks are like that. Yeah, <laughs> he does that cool thing, and we get that for the bridge crew. But then he just says, "Oh, I also programmed like all the screens in the ship to do the same <laughs> thing. So, don't worry about it. Everybody's fine." So it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we should probably bring it into the station here. Okay. Uh, but uh, thank you for joining me. Um, I was going to ask you on the last show. You uh, said that Captain Picard was your space dad in this in- instance. He was your uh, favorite captain. Uh, and we see him uh, in this episode, of course, as you mentioned, be the employee of the month. Uh, very good little, <laughs> very good little drone. Uh, and using his uh, his ingenuity to forward the plan. Uh, who do you think amongst the other Star Trek captains would have been the, the next best person to handle this problem? Oh, my God. Kirk would have like it. it, it he would have passed it to the entire universe. <laughs> it, it, like, I mean, Riker doesn't have any game. Kirk has game. Kirk could have gotten anyone to play this thing. Like, no problem. Yeah. If, if we're if we're spreading this weird sex game across the universe, Kirk is your guy. Yeah. That is your number one dial. <laughs> uh, is it, and, Kirk's the DoorDash of the <laughs> game. Uh, <but laughs> round what, round and round the universe it goes. And when, but when the time uh, comes, you know, for that point in the episode, like he would just shake it off. He'd just go, yeah. no, and then he'd be himself again. Yeah. No uh, lights like, needed. No, the, 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 the twist is that like Kirk is not different. When addicted to the He's game. just the same person. <laughs> He's just the same person. Is it working? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely Kirk. I don't even think Janeway would give this thing the time of day. Uh, she'd she'd punt it out an airlock. <laughs> if you told her that, like if there was a sexy Irish guy in there, um... yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, but then she'd see right away there wasn't. And she or if it was, oh, if it was Nintendogs, because <laughs> she misses her dog, and it's like, you could play with dogs in this video game. Maybe she'd go after that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, now that we've reached the end of the show, and for your past appearance on the show, you will receive a promotion to lieutenant junior grade. Now, the last time on the show, you said that you worked in the command division, and I believe uh, specifically with negotiations. How's that going? Yeah, well, it's all right. You know, it's gotten a lot better since this game showed up. <laughs> yeah, everybody's more <laughs> pliable, really to open to suggestions. They really they, they come up with their own ideas. Oh, Section 31 <laughs> gets their hands on the technology and they want to use it. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. All right, we got to cut that part out. I'm going to write a novel on that. Well, Lieutenant Valenti, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Kat Valenti and uh, on Patreon at Kat Valenti. That's great. And my website is CatherineMValenti.com. And people should be looking for the Space Opera sequel in the future? Late 2021, early 2022. Okay. Great. And I know that you've been working on a big thing. I don't suppose you can say anything about that. I've been working on a couple of big things Ooh. that are secret, so I don't know which one you mean, but I'm going to say <laughs> yes. Any old big thing. Uh, I can't talk about it 
yet. Okay, well, we'll be looking forward to whatever. <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully soon. Uh, I, I have reason to believe if it's what I think you're talking about, it probably is. Given the last time we talked, um, I have reason to believe that I will be able to announce it in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Well, we're waiting for that with bated breath. Thanks again for joining me. All right, thank you so much. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Hana. And I'm Caliban. And we're the hosts of the Sailor Noob Podcast. I'm the expert. And I'm the noob. You're talking into the wrong end of the microphone. Aye, aye. Okay. Every week we watch a new episode of Sailor Moon and learn about monsters, fashion, food, culture, and of course, the Sailor Warrior of Love and Justice, Sailor Moon. All right. Now, what is her rank? Is she an admiral or a rear admiral? Okay, shh, shh. The ad's almost over. We're a couple of magical people, and every week we moon prism power make up a new episode. Please stop that. Sailor Noob is available every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shiver me timbers. Daddy,